Luke 11 and Matthew 6 is where we're going to be over the next number of weeks. Uh, Last week, uh, we ended our series of conversations um, concerning rhythms of peace and destroying chaos. Uh, And we ended it with a conversation that Jesus operated in the rhythm of praying and obeying. And that was one of his key rhythms of peace. Um, So as I began to pray through what we should teach and discuss next, it seemed very natural for us to uh, go into a discussion about prayer. And in Matthew or in Luke The title of it comes because in Luke chapter 11, Jesus' disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Okay, so we're going to dive into that and see what's going on there. So I want to admit, and I think Shay and I may have had this conversation the other day, that um, he and I are the same in the fact that we both have authority issues. Or at least historically, I've had authority issues. I feel like I've gotten better. Me too. Maybe that's an age thing. Maybe it's a maturity you're, you're thing. <laughs> it's good to have accountability. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I can look at my life and I can say from even in high school up until 32 years old, every job and every teacher I had, I had authority issues with them to the point that it drove a wedge and caused me to have to leave. Every single one. Because every boss I had, by the time I got so far into that job, I assumed that I could do it better than they could. And at some point, that drove a wedge, and it caused us to not be able to work together. And that was a continual repeating problem in my life. Now, I'll say at the age of 32, I entered into a position at a church, and that's where I recognized for the first time in my life what it looks like to not allow that to be the problem. And I was able to stay through a season that was, that historically speaking, if I look back at my life, I would have caused to be the end of it because I would have assumed I knew better. And at some point in that process, God humbled me and I was able to persevere and come out the other side of that and see what it looks like to not let my authority issues be the problem. Um, But all that say this, I know what it's like. And when your authority doesn't do like the guy across town, Right, So when you're superior, your authority, whether it's a parent, whether it's a boss, whether whatever it is, we've got various uh, people in position of superiority or authority over us. And it's as, as our role of submitting to all authorities in our life, sometimes we get this thing in our mind that we look across town and somebody else is doing it a different way. And I'm like... Why doesn't my guy get that? Like, because, right? Because what happens is you look across town and you're like, that seems better than what we're doing here. Hey, why don't we do it their way instead of your way? Right? And that's what begins to take place. So what examples can we recall concerning where that fleshes out? So let's get some real life scenarios where that begins to be the situation. Mm-hmm. Y'all want me to start that? Yup. 
the first time I recognize or I go back and I recognize that happening um, in ministry world, we go to church conferences, leadership conferences, and you go off and you, you get in an isolated bubble and you learn what other people in our world are doing. And what inevitably happens to me when I was younger is I would go to this leadership conference and then I would come back home to my context and I would be frustrated with everything that my superior was doing because it wasn't what we were doing at the conference. Look at what all the exciting things that are going on. Look at the, the innovative, creative, and engaging things that all these other leaders are doing. And then I got to come back home to my context and I'm under the authority of somebody that doesn't care. Or they don't have the same vision as those people did. And that begins to be a wedge because my superior isn't doing it uh, like the guy across town. And that can be a frustrating thing for you if you don't have control on yourself in that. So I know in the teacher world, <laughs> how's that flesh out? Uh, okay, so an incident last year comes immediately to mind. <laughs> you didn't want to say it before I said mine? I was about it to. It immediately came but to mind. Okay, I was sorry. about to. And then you were like, you want me to start? And then I was like, hey, <laughs> Oh, and okay, so there was this parrot that I still have nightmares about. <laughs> and just never happy about anything. Always calling, always sending notes, always unhappy about just ridiculous things. And I was really upset at the way that my administrator was handling because I was like, why is this continuing to happen? Like, why are you letting this keep happening? Why are you not helping me? And, and it... I lost a lot of respect in a way, and I lost a lot of passion in what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Granted, I did come to realize great it was made when I realized it, but I got in trouble for something else that this lady was mad about it. <laughs> and he called me to the office, and we were on the phone with this parent, and he muted her, and we just had a conversation while she was talking. Oh, wow. So I did come to realize that he honestly just did not care mm. about it, like, because it was apparently really run-of-the-mill in his world. He, he knew patterns that you didn't know. Yeah. And I yeah. eventually came to realize that. But for the majority of the year, it was... It was a wedge. Mm. You know, anybody else? I hold the reins now. So go back to a time when you didn't hold the reins. That's like every everything. There's <laughs> <laughs> always something. I had a lot of problems at, uh, at pretty much every job. Uh, either time management or uh, things like that. I didn't like a lot of things. Yeah. So here's the deal. What's the motivation behind our thought process? What's the motivation when we see the guy across town or we see somebody handling, other authorities handling or presenting whatever's going on, and then we look at our own context and we're like, why don't you do it that way? Why don't we do it that way? I don't like what we do. Let's do what they do. So what's the motivation behind that? Like the motivation behind me saying, Let's change. Let's 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 imitate. Let's do that. There's a lot of motivating factors. What are a few? Better man. Okay. 
I honestly want, I honestly want us to do better. I think we can do better than what we're doing. What else? Pride, yes. I have figured it out. <laughs> and it, it can come from a motivating source of pride at times. The end goal. Okay. So we have goals that we believe are attainable, but we believe they come from a different means of pursuing it than our superior does at times. And we feel like either we're not getting anywhere or we're not getting fast enough through the current means of operation, right? Anything else? Maybe what we're doing is wrong or illegal or unethical. Okay. That was a lot of words and I'm just gonna say right and wrong. Sure. Just to summarize what you said. But that could be an issue. Like, I think this is either unethical or just unproductive. Like, this is not going to work or it's completely unethical and wrong. And either way, we need to do it another way, right? So, um, I'm going to say this one because <clears throat> I get to say things too. Uh, feeling left out. Sometimes we look across town and we're... Like, we see what the other people are doing and like, that's exciting, that's cool, that's innovative, and then we look at our own place like, dang, I feel like an outsider. I just feel left out of the whole party that's going on. There's a movement in our city or there's a movement in our businesses or there's stuff going on in our education system, and it's exciting, and I just feel like up on the outside looking in, and it's really a bummer, and, and that's... Sometimes a motivating factor. Look at Luke chapter 11. Um, you can, Luke is the, Matthew, Mark, Luke, it is the third book of the New Testament. Uh, there is never any shame for opening up to the beginning of your Bible and finding the table of contents that leads you to the book of Luke and then you can find the chapter who knows who wrote Luke? It was Luke. Good job. The author of Luke is Luke. It is named after the author. Um, and my Tuesday morning guys should be outlining Luke and learning quite a bit about what's going on here. So um, pick up in Luke 11, verse 1. It says, He, being Jesus, was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. So it doesn't appear to be relevant where Jesus was praying or the context of the situation. What Luke wants us to know is that Jesus had just finished praying himself. And then one of his disciples, observing Jesus pray, says, you should teach us to pray. But I found it interesting that it doesn't say, teach us to pray like you pray. He says, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. Now, John was uh, a preacher who was coming, and his ministry was to prepare the way for the Messiah, who, who was Jesus. John was making ways 
of making a way for people to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah, the chosen one, the Savior of the world. And he also had a set of disciples. He also had people that were following him that he was teaching. Uh, and then Jesus' disciples says, hey, why don't you teach us like he taught them? I read that this week. I'm like, huh. How did John teach his disciples to pray? That's a couple questions came to mind, and that was the number one. How did John teach his disciples to pray? Um, what were Jesus' followers, what were Jesus' disciples really want? That was loud. That was, yeah, good job. So if you tilt the cup and then you pour, it's more of a fluid movement that doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> it also doesn't create as much foam. Um, <laughs> sorry. So how did John teach his disciples to pray? What were Jesus' disciples wanting to learn in this moment? And I, I did a lot of, I want to tell you up front, this completely changed the way I read this entire text. Like my Tuesday morning group, we, talks about, we talk about um, a couple big words. What are our big words on Tuesday mornings? And, no, that was the other one. Yeah, see, hermeneutics and exegesis. It's how we look into the text and we find the context of the text. We find the background. We find, you try to recreate what's going on so that as you read it, you can understand in its original intent. Instead of, as we read it, we, and I'm going to be honest with you, as I've read Matthew 6 and Luke 11 for most of my life, I've read it from the context of where I am. And then I read into it every presupposition that I have. But this week I read it and I studied it in a way that opened my eyes and I'm like, holy cow, this is dramatically different than the way I've actually been reading this for 40 years. Um, so that's my warning. How did John teach his disciples to pray? Most likely, John would have taught his disciples the Amidah. Now, Shay may have some of these words tucked away in his memory because you had Jewish family. And the Amidah is defined as the standing prayer. It's the traditional way for Jews to pray. And the standing prayer was composed around 450 B.C., so by the time of Jesus, this prayer and this method is about 500 years old and it's been passed down from generation to generation, still being practiced by Jews today. So what is the, how, how is this function? Well, the Amidah was a stand, you were to stand with your feet together and you are to face Jerusalem from wherever you are in the world. You stand with your feet together and you face Jerusalem and you would hold, unless you had it memorized, I suppose, you would hold the prayers in your hand. There's 18 different prayers um, that are all lumped together, and you would read them one after another, and you would pray them in the position of rocking like this. And maybe you've seen that in different settings as, as you've observed Jews around the world, but they're facing Jerusalem, facing the Ark of the Covenant where, uh, where the Torah is to be, and, and they're facing that direction from wherever you are. So for us, we would be facing east towards Jerusalem, 
feet together. Feet together because in the rocking position, they believed that that was imitating the, uh, the angelic beings from the prophet Isaiah as they proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So it was imitating them in their act of worship as they prayed to God using the Amidah, which is 18 different prayers. They would quote this three times a day. They would quote it at 9 a.m., 12 p.m., and 3 p.m., stopping their day three times a day, feet together. And they would begin the prayer by taking three steps back so as to step out of the ordinary and then three steps forward to represent stepping into the presence of the King of Kings. So three times a day, they stop what they're doing, they face Jerusalem, three steps back out of their ordinary day, out of their ordinary routine, three steps forward into the presence of the King, positioning themselves as if to represent, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the angelic beings that are worshiping God. And then they recite these 18 different prayers or blessings there's three categories in them. There's a category of praise, a category of petition, where they ask God for things, and then it ends with a category of thanks. So, is that what they were wanting to learn? It's like, did they feel left out? Like, is Jesus... Disciples are like following Jesus, doing what Jesus does, listening to Jesus' teaching. And then John's disciples and all other Jews are like on the street corner and they're facing Jerusalem three times a day. They're going through these really dramatic and fancy religious rituals. It's like, did they feel left out? Did they feel like what they were doing maybe was right or wrong? Did they feel like, hey, I don't know if we're really getting to the end goal here, Jesus. It seems like what they're doing seems to be a lot more. Maybe what we're doing is not enough. And you just begin to wonder, like if that's what they were wanting to learn, what did they think about what they were already being shown? I think we can connect with that. I think that's a logical thing for us to ask. Did they want to fit into the religious surroundings? Did they perceive to be left out as others prayed in the streets, observed elaborate guidelines? Were the prayers of Jesus, and this was my next question, were the prayers of Jesus like the prayers of John? It's like if this is the prayers of the Jews of the time, and if this is what John and other rabbi leaders would have been teaching their disciples, did Jesus pray that way? Is that what he did? Did he stop three times a day, step back, step forward, put his feet together, rock, and repeat these very structured prayers? Did he do that like everybody else did? Did he follow the Amidah in routine daily prayers? So I asked all these questions, and I can't take you through it because it was a week-long study for me. But I want to give you my conclusion. Jesus appears to value the structure from the Amidah. Through the prayer that he taught, that you know is the Lord's Prayer, and this is going to change the way you read the Lord's Prayer for the rest of your life. I'll show you in the coming weeks. He appears to value the structure of the Amidah, yet we cannot find him practicing religious regulations and public displays of piety. 
Jesus just isn't found doing those things. There's no elaborate ways that he approached God. There's no public displays of piety. In fact, as he teaches in Matthew 6 and verse 5, he says the hypocrites, they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. He said, there's some on the street corners facing Jerusalem three times a day, feet together, rocking back and forth, reciting these prayers under their breath, and they love the fact that they're on the street corners and others are observing their elaborate rituals. That's not to say that Jesus is calling everyone a hypocrite who does that, but he says, grouped in that are many who just like the fact that others see them. Instead, we find Jesus practicing exactly what he preached. He slipped off in the middle of the night, he broke away, and he would do as he preached, that he would go into a private room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, Matthew 6, 6. That's what he taught. Go into your private room, close the door, pray to your Father in secret. That's what he taught, and that's what we see him doing. We never once see Jesus standing on the street corner facing the temple to be seen by others. We see him going off in the middle of the night, spending time with his heavenly father and doing those things. In fact, both times Jesus teaches prayer, which is Matthew 6 and Luke 11, he teaches, and this is what kind of rocked my world this week, the Lord's Prayer is an abbreviated version of the Amidah Prayer. So those 18 prayers, which is now turned into 19, whole different story. But at that time, it would have been 18. And Jesus teaching what he taught, my Father who is in heaven, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. That is an abbreviated version of the Amidah prayer that was being taught since 450 B.C. But the surrounding instructions focus on the who of prayer, not the how. So the question from his disciple was, Lord, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. And in Jesus' response, he gives a blip, an abbreviated version, a very quick version, pray like this. But the mass of his teaching on prayer was not focused on how to pray, it was focused on who to pray to. And in weeks to come, we will consider the content of prayer, but for this morning's purpose... We consider the recipient of our prayer because who we pray to determines how we pray. Who we pray to determines how we pray. So I think as I read this this week, that's the primary thing that Jesus wants us to understand is who we pray to. And that is the greatest definition of how we're going to pray. Because he doesn't give a lot of focus on the how, but he does give a lot of focus on the who. So who is the who? It's the Father. He says, our Father... And that's as far as we're getting in that prayer this morning. It's our Father. What do we know to be true about the Father? That's the question we're going to ask this morning. What do we know to be true about the Father that Jesus teaches us to communicate with? 
Number one from Matthew 6, 6. He says, go into your, your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And then he says, there you go. Your father who sees you in secret will reward you. So number one thing we know about our father, we father who sees us in solitude. Oops. One on one time. We have a father who sees us in our solitude and gives us one on one time. It's the number one thing we know about our father that we pray to. So, my boys, uh, one of them played on a basketball team last year. And there was a kid on our basketball team who was obviously the best player on the whole team. Like, there wasn't even questions about it. Like, he's the only one that could dribble. And you get on these first grade basketball teams, and that's the way it is. Like, one kid can dribble, one kid can shoot, everybody else stinks. And it's just spend the whole year trying to get kids better. That's just the way it is. Um, and he was obviously the best one, the most skilled one, but <clears throat> like that was the obvious thing. That's not what struck me. What struck me was the interaction between him and his dad as we went through the season. That was the most unique thing. Because his dad, I wish I had it, I don't have it. Just imagine I had my phone. His dad would stand on the sidelines of the basketball court and he'd be on his phone the whole time. During every game, he'd be over here on his phone, 90% of the time, on his phone. And his kid would be out there imitating Steph Curry, dribbling through his legs, going behind his back, doing all kinds of crazy moves that were completely unnecessary because the other kids couldn't dribble, the other kids couldn't guard. All he had to do was go straight to the goal, but he didn't do that. He wanted to imitate Steph Curry. All kinds of crazy stuff, crazy shots, crazy dribbling, crazy moves. And his dad stared down his phone. 90% of the time. And every now and then, I would notice his dad look up, see his son, and he would encourage the chaos that his son was causing. And then he would go back down to his phone. And that was the entire season. The entire season went like that. Um, the boy was out of control, but his dad... Number one, didn't seem to notice. Number two, when he did notice, he seemed to encourage it. And I think about that, and I think about what Jesus is telling us, and I think this. Children who lack the Father's attention in private act out strange patterns in public. Children who lack their Father's attention in private act out strange patterns in public. Jesus says that you don't have to do that. Like when it comes to how you pray and to who you pray to, our Father's not looking for elaborate religious rituals. He like sees you in private. He spends time with you in private. He's not looking for you to impress Him with fancy moves and elaborate things. He like sees you in private so that Number one, you don't have to act out strange things in public. But number two, I just think about how that changes us. That when I, when I have that one-on-one -on -one time with my father in private, then I get to go healthy patterns in public, not strange patterns in public. We have a father 
who sees me in solitude and gives me one-on-one time. Second thing that we know to be true about this father is from Matthew 6, 8. It says, don't be like them because your father knows the things that you need. He said the Gentiles, they love to, to babble on and a lot of words in their prayer and they say a lot of things in their prayer because they think that if they say a lot of things and they babble a lot of awesomeness in their prayer over and over, the Gentiles of those days uh, were different than the Jews of those days. The Gentiles would think that they could have repetition in their prayer, say the same things over and over and over and over and over, and you just repeat mantras over and over and over. And that by saying many things many times, God's going to hear and answer you. Jesus said, we're not like that. Your father's not like that. We have a father who sees what I need. We have a father who sees what I need before I say a word. We have a father who sees what I need before I say a word. We have a father who sees what I need before I even say a word. Let me ask you this. You see a child in public completely disrespecting other people. You know that setting. I'm not talking about like you're wrestling with your kid in public because I do that kind of stuff too. But what's interesting thing about my kids is they will disrespect me in my home all day long, but then they're the teacher's pet in school, right? So you want to know if you're a decent parent, just how do they treat others, not how they treat you because you're going to wrestle with them. You're going to have frustration with them. That's inevitable. Like, but when your kid is out of your sight and they're in a public space, they're under other authority, and then they're disrespecting others in public, what do you think to yourself that that kid needs? A good spanking? <laughs> they need a paddle to their backside. And who do you think is supposed to be doing that? <coughs> Parent. I mean, when you got kids that are uncontrollable in the school context or they're uncontrollable uh, on their basketball team context and they have no discipline, no respect for any other authority and they're just completely out of control, you think to yourself, their dad needs to step in and give them a good whooping or whatever. We can talk about whoopings later on. This is not the point of this. If you don't believe in them, I'm sorry, you're wrong. No, I'm just kidding. But... This is not the time and place to discuss what discipline is proper, but what they need is discipline to come from their father. Because when you see kids without any respect for your authority, you immediately think about their dad. Right? So think about another one. When you see a young lady seeking the attention of every boy that she sees. Like you got a young woman who's 13, 14, 15 years old, and you call it boy crazy. But she is just longing to have the attention of every boy that comes across her. What do you think she needs? Some some private attention with her father. She needs a dad that pours value into her in solitude. It's like, where's her dad? I've worked with students for the last, I don't know, 10 to 12 years. And I can tell you time after time after time after time, we had young ladies come through our groups 
And, and you can see the ones who have a dad who is engaged with her in her everyday life, and you can see the ones who don't. Because you don't have to be a perfect dad, but just being a present dad transforms the self-value of a young lady. And you see these young women, and you see them engaged in just longing for every boy that comes along. Where is her dad? She just needs to know that her father loves her. That's all she needs. But apparently, he's absent. She needs the love and attention of a father. Let me turn the story. Suppose that you took that young boy and you took that young lady and you asked them what they need. What do you think they would say? Like, you know they need the discipline of a father, they need the love and affection of a father, but if you ask them, what do you think you need? Like, hey, dude, you don't seem to want to subject yourself to your coach. Hey, you don't seem to care about the authority of your teachers. What would you like for me to do for you? What's he going to say? I don't know. That's what I was thinking. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Get out of the way. Just leave me alone. Yeah. Just leave me alone, man. <laughs> right? I've worked with those punks. <laughs> but you got the young lady. It's like... Hey, I see you, man, you just really want that guy to pay attention to you. What do you need? What do you want? What's she going to say? I want to be my boyfriend. I want to pay attention to him. I want him to see me. I want, I want him to, I want this. I want him. I want that. But the thing is, you know that that's what they need. That's not what they need. Like what they say they want, what they say they need, you know that's not the answer. Because children who are not seen by their father seek to be heard instead. Children who are not seen by their father will seek to be heard instead. Jesus says you don't have to be heard because you are already seen. Your father in heaven sees and he knows without you saying a word. Like, you have a father who sees exactly what you need before you even speak a word. And the problem with us is that, like, if God said, Sam, what you need today? The funny thing is, whatever we say, he's going to look at us and say, Ah, oh, Sam... That's cute. It's not really what you need, though. Like, I know that's what you think, because we're just like that little kid. It's like, hey, hey son, what do, you, what do you want me to do for you? Just leave me alone. Just leave me alone, dude. Your father sees you. He knows exactly what you need without you saying a word. Because we who are seen don't have to be heard. It's those who are not seen by their father that will seek to be heard. Last thing that we have this morning, Luke chapter 11, verse 13. Jesus is teaching the same passage. This is where he's responding to the question. The other time where he spoke the Lord's Prayer in teaching was in the Sermon on the Mount. It was not. So this was two different times he teaches the same thing, the same theme, the same uh, paraphrased version of the Amidah. 
But in Luke 11, verse 13, he said, he went through this whole thing. Suppose one of you has a friend, you go to him at midnight, he's like, friend, hey, I need some bread because I got some people coming over to the house and I need to host them. And your friend's like, dude, it's midnight, I'm in bed, leave me alone. And Jesus is like, but she's like, no, I really got people like coming over. I got nothing. I need help to host. He's like, yeah, but it's late. He's like, no, but you don't understand. These people, he said, take my bread and let me go back to sleep. And Jesus tells this story about this. And then he says, he, he summarizes that by saying, if you ask, it'll be given. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. He's, he's, for everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, would give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, would give him a scorpion? He's like, that's ridiculous. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? The whole story that he told, he said he, the perseverance of that man who was asking was paid off. It's like the reason his friend helped is because of his perseverance. And then he says, if you guys who are evil can give good things, how much more will your heavenly father <coughs> give you? But then he doesn't like say, so we have a... I'm going to get into that. We have a father who rewards persistence with his presence. We have a father who rewards persistence with his presence. How much more will the Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit? To those who ask him. Huh. Sometimes I reward persistence with anger. Right? Like I gave my kids fishing poles for their birthday. And what do you think my kids have wanted to do ever since they had a birthday and received new fishing poles? Dad, let's go fishing. And granted, it's not fair because they have a pond in their backyard. And like they wake up in the morning, look out the window, and there's fish. And there's a new pole. Dad, let's go fishing. Dad, let's go fishing. Son, I got to go to work today. Dad, let's go fishing. Hey, I got to finish this in the office. Dad, let's go fishing. Dude, this is the one time that I've had five minutes to breathe. Dad, let's go fishing. And then and inevitably, I'm just frustrated, and I blow up on my kids. Yes, I'm dad of the year. Thank you for that. But Jesus says, we have a father who's not like me. Like, he will reward your persistence with his presence. He's not like us who are evil. He's different than us. The father that Jesus speaks of is different. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Think about the first two, that we have a father who sees us in solitude, and we have a father who sees what I need before I even say a word. 
As children, we desire dad's attention in private and internally long to be seen more than we really want to be heard. We may say we want to be heard, but we really just want to be seen. I think of all the things that my children ask for. Dad, I want a PlayStation. Dad, I want a Nintendo Switch. I didn't even get to them. We gave them a PlayStation instead. I know how to give good gifts. You don't know what you want. Um, Dad, I need fishing pole. Dad, I want a basketball goal. Dad, I want this. What's interesting to me is that when I reflect on all the things that my kids ask for, um, the primary thing they want is me. Because like when they get a basketball goal, it's not like they go to the driveway and play basketball by themselves. What's the next thing they ask? Dad, let's go play basketball. It's not like they got the PlayStation and I don't see them anymore. They say, Dad, let's go play Minecraft. Like, I hate Minecraft. Can we play <laughs> NBA 2020 instead? So when I think about all the things that my sons ask for, the primary thing that they long for is me. They may ask for stuff, but they desire me. They rarely want anything if I don't come with it. Why is that? Because their joy is more complete in my company. That's true. My children's joy is more complete in my company. And children who are persistent with this father enjoy his presence. I want to say very directly that your joy, no matter how many things you ask for, how many things you want, or how many things you have, apart from the presence of your heavenly father, you're missing the fullness of the joy with all the things that he has given you. Your joy will be more complete in the presence of your father. You can have a lot of cool stuff, but you will not have the fullness of the joy unless your heavenly father enjoys those things with you. And your persistence, pursuing him, asking for him will be rewarded with his presence. The ironic thing about prayer is by the time we recall whom we pray to, then how we pray doesn't seem to matter as much. It's like, Lord, teach us how to pray just like they pray, because the way they pray, man, that's cool. Gets attention. It's like got a lot of rituals with it. It seems to be important. It seems to be powerful. And Jesus ultimately says, who you pray to is far more important than how you pray, because who you pray determines how you pray. And by the time I realize at least even these three things, and I say, our Father like, I want to approach God in prayer, and I begin saying, Father, you see me right now. You're going to spend time with me. Father, you, I didn't even ask for anything, and you know everything I need, and you know better than I do. Oh, man, Father, you're about to reward me with your presence. That whatever you give me, it's going to be more joyful, more complete, because you're going to be with me. It's like, man, just like meditating on who I pray to before I pray anything seems to transform and seems to wash away any weightiness of what I just, what I felt like asking for when I came into his presence. 
It's like I could just stop right there. Just Father. You got it. <laughs> yeah, I forgot what I was going to say. Yeah, just Father. Yeah. It's good. Who we pray to is transforms how we pray. What does this mean? How does it work? Where do we go from here? Jesus told another story in Luke chapter 15. Some of you know it by the, uh, the prodigal son. But Jesus tells a story about a son who had a father, and his father was rich. And the son says, you know what, Dad? I think I would rather have your stuff than you. So would you just give me my inheritance now that way I can enjoy it now. And so the father obliged and he gave him all his inheritance even before he died. And the son took the stuff and then he ran away. He went off to a distant land and he just blew it all. Blew everything that his father gave him. And he got to thinking as he was at the bottom of the barrel on the workforce and he just feeding pigs, which was the most disgraceful thing that he could do. He got thinking to himself, what if I go home and I ask my dad if I can be his servant? I know I blew everything, but what if I just go ask him if I can be a servant? So his son starts home. He goes off to a distant land, blows all his money. Do, 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 do. That's money. Okay. Blows it all. Thinks to himself, what if I go home? Go ask to be my dad's servant. So he starts the journey back home. And on his way home, he's like thinking about what he's going to say, right? It's like, oh, crap, I blew all your money. I, I, just, I, just, I just wasted everything. So he's got this big alert. How am I going to approach my father? How am I going to explain this to dad? How am I going to earn my way back into the house? How am I going to go back? What am I going to say? What am I going to do? I got I to gotta have everything I'm going to say just right, just right. And Jesus tells that when he's on his road home, his father actually sees him, goes out to meet him, and embraces him. And the interesting thing is that in the embrace of his father, everything he thought he was going to say fades away and becomes irrelevant. This became irrelevant. Nothing that he had planned to say got said. Nothing that he wanted to explain got explained. His father embraced him. He was in his presence. And the whole speech just fades away. Wasn't even relevant in the whole story. <clears throat> Jesus also tells us that I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no man comes to the Father except by me. Jesus says, I am the road home. That's me. And unless you come by me, you do not come home to the Father. I've made a way. I've made a way. You're not going to accomplish it by persuasive speeches, by elaborate rituals, anything. The way home, the road, the path back home to this Father is by me. That's it. 
That's it. Believe that your sin has been paid for. Your debt has been paid. Whatever separated you, whatever story, whatever excuses, whatever destruction, whatever rebellion you have back here, Jesus has eliminated it by taking it upon His own body, by bleeding out His own blood upon a cross. And because Jesus has done that, He says, I am the way home to the Father. There is no other way. So how do we enjoy the presence of this Father and the benefits of this Father? Jesus says, it's by me. It's by me. Put your trust in me. Put your hope in me. Have faith in me. I don't know that the question that the disciple asked Jesus. I don't know if it was a good question. <laughs> Lord, teach us how to pray. Now, Jesus seems to give a nod to it because he gives this abbreviated version. But I think, I think maybe the, the better question would have been, Jesus, would you teach us to whom we pray? Because that matters. That matters the most. To whom do we pray and how do we find Him? I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Jesus is our road home, the path to our Father's embrace. It is His life, His death, His resurrection for our rebellion. No fancy prayers, no elaborate rituals. Just knowing that Jesus has paved a way. And then we have a Father who sees us. Father who sees what I need and who rewards me and my persistence with his presence. Questions, comments, reflections. I usually don't put a period on the end of our messages. I usually leave it open. It seemed good to do this morning. So I know the question for your reflections is less natural. So. <clears throat> I want to encourage you this. As you continue to pray, and even in our rooted book, and it asks you to pray and write out those prayers, many of you will very naturally write Father at the beginning of your prayer. Maybe you pray, Father, and you're going to skim through that as if that's just how you address Him. I want to encourage you to meditate on these realities as you say, speak, or write that. And before you pass, you're, ad you're addressing the Father. Allow it to sink in before you continue. Allow it to drive your request. Allow it to drive your interaction. And I think it will transform the way we pray. Derek, will you close this in prayer today? Father, thank you.